0: So, Welcome to Bonehead Weekly. Today we have the writer extraordinaire, John C. Foster. How are you doing, sir? I am good.
1: I'm, <laughs> I'm glad to be here. And it's I know. Friday night, so it's got to be good.
0: It's Friday night and you're talking to two guys in Kentucky. That's that right. means you have no life. We love you. We appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> Dude, I'm a writer. I know. <laughs> I know. So it's our pleasure. James, you booked him, right? yeah yeah well I, he, he he he
2: wandered in we uh, he didn't tell me no <laughs> James you're awful you're awful for done.
0: segues but anyway I, I suck at segways. so what does that say behind you famous author
1: oh shit yeah that, uh, another uh, wonderful writer and a friend of mine is uh Eric Nunnally and uh-huh. uh, yeah, I went to uh this is it he also is a designer, a graphic designer. So I went to Providence where he lives and we were uh, doing a a book signing at a a bookstore in the area. And he met me at the train station and he just like, as you know, he's sitting there with his, his, you know, Hyundai or whatever it was, but as if it was a, you know, a livery car and he (laughs) was waiting with a sign that just said this, which is pretty funny. So I kept it because.
0: Well, if uh, it makes you feel better, not the first time I did a convention, but the first time we did a convention as Bonehead Weekly, like we had our own table and something Uh we were we were actual guests the the placard it's in my garage it's just a piece of paper but it says it and i've just kept it so did you
1: guys just do the, the the imaginarium
0: no, I did not do an Imaginarium, and I have a wonderful story I'll tell you right after this podcast that I won't say okay. in person, <laughs> okay. but there's a story there between me and the folks who run the Imaginarium, ah. <laughs> and I will tell you, I'm extremely professional.
1: So, I, I'm glad to hear it.
0: That's the reason why I won't tell you the story until after this podcast, <laughs> but a friend of ours
1: is there, Laurel,
0: uh, Laurel Hightower.
1: That's how I, I, I found out about you guys.
0: Yeah, she's a dear friend. She we love her writing. Uh we were friends. I shouldn't say we were friends before she was a, you know, famous author, but we were friends before we fa- our kids play together.
1: Oh neat. Yeah, yeah it's it, this is one of those small world things. My wife is an audiobook narrator. Yeah. And She narrated Crossroads. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, so so <laughs> it's just what the it's all the worlds are overlapping. And
0: it it's one of the good things about social media and the internet. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. One so of the you and I yeah, one of the yeah, few yeah. good things you and right. I would never have this conversation beforehand and we That's would never right. make all these connections, but because of her just be happening to be here and then us being friends, and yeah, yeah. And then a lot of times this happens. We had Mick Garris, the director on the show. Oh, nice. And, yeah. Yeah. But we had someone else on, and he said I checked with Mick, and we thought it was a friend of ours who's a production designer named Mick, who's been very close to us, and but it wasn't. It was Mick Garris, and he gave us a good review, and I was like Hell yeah, after I realized yeah. it later on. And it was six months after. We're getting off topic. You were going to tell me something. You were going to recite a story oh. or maybe a poem?
1: Yes, I am, uh, I'm trying to memorize this and I'm, I'm going, to, going to inflict it on you. And I'm uh, excited, our audience. And your audience. Decided. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, my dog, as I was saying earlier, is getting PTSD because I keep sort of shouting this at her. <clears throat> Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. Twas brillig. And the slithy toves did gyre and gibble in the wave. All mimsy were the borough and the mome wraths Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. I think that part's going to be a tattoo. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought. So rested he by the tum tum tree and stood a while in thought. And as in an uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame. Came whiffling through the tolgy wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through, The vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy, O oh, frabjous day, Kalu-kale, he chortled in his joy. T'was and the slithy toes did gyre and gibble in the wave. All mimsy were the borogos, and the mome raths outgrave. It's 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 really tricky because they sound like words, but they're not words. But
0: you and I was at a high school graduation once, long story, and the kid who was the valedictorian Mm -hmm. just got up, here's my speech, and did it all from memory. And that was it. He walked off stage and I'm impressed. I, I yeah, that's a definite mic drop. I was the only one, I think, in the audience who was impressed. I think everybody else was weirded out by it. But right. Yes. Yes. So that's fantastic. Why? What? What is drawing you to do that? Why do you want to re- memorize it? Just to be able I've to. Liked it it, I've
1: liked it for a while. Um, I like that it is full of nonsense words yeah. that are completely understandable. When he describes the tology wood, Tolgy is not a fucking word, but mm-hmm. you know exactly. What he saw. I can picture all these things even though they're nonsense words. Yes. Um, and I, I've, I've wanted um, some phrasing from this poem uh, as a tattoo for a while um, but I'm very lazy about it and uh-huh. if I have if I have 200 bucks you know that's just there to waste which I don't normally but I'm probably going to go eat and drink <laughs> instead, of, instead of getting a tat But but I want to try to focus now so if I memorize this and then I'll sound cool and literary.
0: You sound cool and literary no matter what. But no, I'm a college dropout. So, <laughs> oh, that's okay. We're not, and we look. <laughs> we liked college so much. Technically, we've never left.
1: Good for you. See, you, you are you are the yin to my yang. Oh,
0: you're the first person who said that, and I thought mm, maybe genuinely means it, and I feel bad now because <laughs> I should be <laughs> no one's yang now. I have a question for you that I've asked a lot of writers specifically. So we've, That's my friend. we've had production designers, uh, directors, and we try to not ask bullshit questions that you get all the time, but this is one of my bullshit questions. And I hope you understand it when I ask because not everyone does, but what was the bug that bit you? What was it in your childhood? Sometimes Stephen King would say, why are you so screwed? The question would be, why are you so screwed up? That's not what I mean. What was it that got you? What was it that sent you down this road? What was it that led you to maybe not only creativity, but the macabre?
1: Uh, Probably two things. Uh, The first is that when I was, I I still have pretty ferocious dreams. um, But when I was little, I think my imagination was way too big for my little head. Uh And um, I didn't have night terrors because I've read up on night terrors, but I had pretty severe nightmares all the time. Yeah. Um, and I was just scared shitless of the dark and of the night and going to sleep. And it was just, it was a battle all the time. And I still can get scared of the dark. If I'm at a, like a weird hotel and I don't know, it, and you turn off all the lights and it's pitch black, and sometimes I'll just get up and I'll go turn on the bathroom light So I'm just going, I can see a little bit, just in case I need to, you know, react, you know, something. Right. But uh, that, and then uh, in fifth grade, I discovered Edgar Rice Burroughs, and the Barsoom novels. Uh-huh. And, um, for some reason I started, I start a lot of series with the second novel. So I started with, um, gods of Mars instead of princess of Mars, but yeah, my, you know, my mouth just dropped open. I was like, Holy shit. There, there are flying ships that look like waterships and they have cannons, but everyone's got swords and this guy can jump really far because he's from earth. And those dudes are green and they have four fucking arms. And this was amazing to me. <laughs> and, uh, and so that, that, I think that really just sort of opened up the door and really science fiction and fantasy sword and sorcery was my bread and butter for a long time.
0: Where'd you move from Edgar Ross Burroughs? What was the next step?
1: Oh, I mean, it took me a while, you know, back in those days, even though the little books that would, you know, take me a month and a half or something like that to read, you know, 180 wow. pages or whatever. Um, but then as I, as I went on, um, you know, things like David Eddings, uh, Piers Anthony, Oh, Pierce
0: um, Anthony. I, I got into Pierce Anthony as well. Yeah,
1: uh, the, the Adept series and stuff like that was really cool. Um, mm-hmm. I was, anything with magic was cool. Lord of the Rings, of course. Um, mm-hmm. Terry Brooks and the Shannara books. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think I started to stumble into, not to dismiss those, but uh, just better writing of Roger Zelazny. And uh, I found the Amber series. Again, I hit the second book, um, The Guns of Avalon. Um, and I read this thing, and I was I was just blown away. He had this almost unadorned prose that was so elegant and told such phenomenal stories. And so that started to advance the reading because uh, you know the Amber books are phenomenal. But if you read, if, I don't know, have you read Lord of Light?
0: I have not. No. Oh, it's, it's phenomenal.
1: And it's basically, it, it posits it's a it's another world and a group of very super super rich. Um, emigrated, it's in the future, emigrated from earth or something to this other world. And they set themselves up as deities. Um, they brought along a bunch of people that could be the peasants and live in the world. And they set themselves up as deities and, and they decided on the uh, Indian pantheon, uh, the Hindu pantheon. And um, they have a technology where they can move into new bodies when their body gets old. So they're they're immortal. And sometimes, you know, for a century, one will be, you know, uh brahma lord of the gods king of the gods and then he'll switch over and become kali you know the goddess of destruction for another century and, and they don't really care but one of them is kind of doesn't like the setup and he introduces buddhism uh uh-huh. the world and becomes a rebel and and it sort of gets so last knew his ship yeah. you've got this incredible science fiction adventure story with these very, very deep thoughts that are going on. So that really started to expand things for me.
0: That's awesome. What what else was going on with it? So you were reading any television, any movies as well? Dungeons and
1: Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons. I lived for it. I I would leave my school books behind, but I had, you know, all of the, at the time there was, you know, second edition. So I had like the five standard uh, manuals were always in my book bag, um, no matter where I went. And um, I was always just, and it's funny. I look back. Cause I, you know, I know so many writers who are doing a lot of creative writing then. And I wasn't except that I was, cause I was just constantly creating adventures.
0: Were you and a dungeon they, master?
1: I, I was a dungeon master and a player, but I would create all these adventures that never got played. Cause I was just making them. Yeah. You know? uh, and it was fun.
0: And you actually were born in sleepy hollow.
1: <laughs> I was born in sleepy hollow New York, which is about uh, 45 minutes North of the city where I live now. Well, and, not but i know sleepy hollow right i'm
0: just saying i don't even know where to go with it because i was looking i was researching you and we were all excited about having you on the show james has been trying to read ferociously and i was trying to get all this background (laughs) yeah and 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 if you're listening james just held held up james
1: i hope that by read ferociously that meant that you were cursing and throwing books across the room and just just being an asshole and well he's
0: an asshole but he doesn't curse a lot
1: well oh. no
2: but if i do it's it's usually well earned it takes a lot but there's once that once that standard has been hit it it it, it does happen but <laughs> no it, it's i think the um and 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 i guess we we do need to uh i mean I, the, talking about dungeons, Ed, i got time, time. Uh, talking about and dungeons and dragons i think one of the things that uh always kind of shocks me is it is so creative it is mm-hmm. it is you you you, you're pretty much writing the lord of the rings right you're, mm-hmm. you're forming what's going to happen and and then other people have to react to it
0: but I mean, see you're going to end up as a satanist james if you keep playing those well I mean,
2: actually i've got that the church of satan has asked not me not to be associated with it right. they <laughs> sent a very kind letter and he said exactly. assist. <laughs> yeah that please
0: right. what a better way to spin i know it's geekery and you have a very stereotypical geek background like a lot of us yeah. but it's what a what a what a fertile background it's so much better than just sitting there watching something and then just making it up on your own although i sat there and watched quite a quite a bit not, i mean not i want i watched i
1: watched i i have a shirt on for you probably can't see it, but it's creature double feature uh uh-huh. which on saturdays on in new england because uh, i grew up in new england um even though i was born in new york um creature double feature on saturdays they would play back to back to monster movies sometimes they were like hammer films or dracula uh-huh. But often they were kaiju, so you'd get, you know, Godzilla and Gamera and Mothra and all that sort of stuff. And so I was I was all into that for, for years and years and years. Um, but they would also introduce, you know, sort of, I think, more heady fare fair, like um, the Omega Man. Have you ever seen that?
0: Oh, have we? Hold on. Let me find my original I Am Legend over here. Nice. <laughs> nice. Are we into that? I don't know. I just being a smart ass, but no, uh, that and hell house are two of my favorite. Oh books yes. Of all time. I actually, and I, I get shit for this. Yeah. But I actually prefer hell house over another book, uh, called the haunting.
1: Right. Yeah. But I'm the one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things. I mean, Matheson is a, is a stunning writer Shirley Jackson is at a level of her own. Um, it
0: is and I, you know, we love the lottery. James and I have this joke all the time. You won the lottery. What kind of ja- lottery, James?
1: Shirley
2: Jackson's lottery.
0: Sorry, what I'm going to win. We're saying when we say it out loud, it's you won the
1: lottery. But you know, Matheson's book, Shirley Jackson is a literary writer. Um, yes, absolutely. And Matheson is not. And wow. so Matheson, it goes, it's. I won't say it's better, but it's more fun.
0: It's it's a haunted house book, right? Whereas the other one, we're dealing with a with a with a poor person who is going through lack of a better word, a metamorphosis and a breakdown, right? At the same time, and yeah, no, and Hell House is a balls to the wall haunted house, right? And actually, if you scan over here on the other side, I have with the Roddy McDowell the original. One legend of of Hell House. But Matheson said before he died, that's the one movie he wished they would, one of the movies that could be remade that, you know, they could up to date. But uh, anyway, we're getting- I actually don't
1: think they need to. It's so perfectly atmospheric. I
0: love it too. It's it's so Hammer-ish because it's British in that, even though I don't, it wasn't made by Hammer, (laughs) but it's Hammer-esque. I should have said but yeah I sorry we're not talking about your work right now but oh, I'm interested in your where you got the tick so you left you grew up when was it that you said I'm going to write I'm going to create for a living
1: uh I think I said it after a lot of people told me I should be writing well that's um, good
0: as, as yeah. opposed to the opposite
1: as a, as a you know when I was a student people were saying that and and of course, they all had different ideas. Um, you should be a writer. That means you should be a journalist. Um, you should be a writer. You be a good lawyer, not be a bad lawyer, because I hated being in school. Um, you know, so there was all that, and then finally, um, I left. You know, high school was done. I, I had started to play a little bit with writing, and I had started falling in with the theater geeks. Uh-huh. and thought maybe I would be a theater geek. Really, I, I discovered that I just liked the theater and I liked the theater crowd, but yep. I wasn't a good actor. So I got into the Boston University Theater Conservatory and I definitely wasn't up to the level <laughs> of the other people. But I also realized, it was like, yeah, I don't want to do this and, and I don't want to be in school anymore. And so I dropped out my first semester. Um, then I, I, I got one college credit work. I, I had a day job at Emerson College and I had a free... I got free classes. So I did a, uh-huh. an independent study and wrote a, wrote a terrible derivative story called the Hound of Beckett Manor, which was the Hound of the Baskervilles. Um, <laughs> but it's a cool title. I
0: really, thank you. I'm going to, if I'm on shutter, stop at the Hound of Beckett Manor.
1: Yeah. And so I wrote it that to rip off. So that was, that was my one college credit after high school. And I got one in high school for an AP class. And then I, I, sort of learned how hard it was to be on your own when you're young and you have no skills and, and lost a lot of weight. And then eventually just, I went to California. I said, you know what? I want the entertainment industry. I'm going to be a screenwriter. Never seen Los Angeles. Had not seen a screenplay, except for like, you know, someone on TV holding a screenplay. Yeah. Well, I thought, fuck it. How hard can it be? Hard, turned out. But um, but I did it. <laughs> and so that's how I got my start writing.
0: So did you hate high school too?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I just, I, I wasn't... I ended up switching high schools, uh, and I think, looking back, I think uh, some of the depression stuff was already creeping in because, like, my junior year, junior year, I failed English. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, after that, I went on to AP English at a different school, so there was weird shit going on. But I I shifted to a private school with small classes, and I had a couple teachers. I had a theater teacher I really liked, and I had an English teacher that, Mr. Meese, and he was that sort of. He had the big voice, you know, private school New England yeah. teacher, um, and he kind of scared people. But really, what he wanted was people to to fight back, you know, intellectually fight back, to think for themselves. Yeah, and and stand up, establish an argument, and make your argument. And um, so he became a great um, a great ally for me. And he's the one that actually um, got me into AP. You know, he pulled me aside after one class. He said, "You know." If you got your shit together you could be in, a, uh, in, in advanced placement and I was like I hadn't even thought of it you know mm-hmm. um, so I did but uh, I actually wrote something and I showed him a story once and I, I, I always appreciate this I wrote some terrible dumb thing about post-apocalyptic samurai practicing a thousand cuts who then somehow because he's done this can cut the head off a vampire and I gave this fragment to Mr. Mees. And it came back, there was more red ink than there was black ink from the original thing. Um, but I, I look back later and I think I learned two things. One, never give someone a story before it's ready to be looked at. Yep. And two, he spent a lot of time working on that story. And I have mad respect for the amount of effort he put in.
0: Yeah, that's but, great. Yeah, it was pretty,
1: pretty important.
0: So you have a very similar. So James and I hated high school too. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so that's why you stayed in education. Well, the funny thing is, sir, is that uh, I'm a first gen, and we we uh it was a way to get out of Eastern Kentucky.
1: Ah, uh, is Eastern Kentucky the shitty part? Yeah. Okay, it's that's... the mountains. It's Appalachia. Ah, uh, okay.
0: Well, it depends. You know, some people call it Kentucky, no matter what. But there are we we're very much in this little blueberry, right? And, and I'm see a sea of red so. That being said, I can't empathize I hated high school and it turns out the reason I enjoyed college sir is because we're you and I are probably about right around the same age and no yeah. one told me what to do mm-hmm. and I felt that if it was all on me I, I fared much better
1: yeah I, I think I was still feeling like people were telling me what to do like I had to be at this place in this class and and I just didn't want it anymore yeah I wanted I wanted, I wanted to do my own thing which which turned out to be yeah i lost a lot of weight because i couldn't do rent and eat and <laughs> you learn all those but i learned a good worth at work ethic that's good
0: so yeah. you I, the bravery just to get up and you never been to los angeles before before no. you moved out. so did you just have it's one of those stories where you just have the car you load up you have like 400 bucks and you're just gonna yeah I, out st- there.
1: I stopped in tennessee i got a, a speeding ticket in amarillo because fuck amarillo um <laughs> never get back
0: not gonna pay those bastards for that i mean
1: oklahoma's a wash um i'm sorry they're lovely people in oklahoma that's
0: okay Um, i mean really it's just one shitty musical keep going
1: and i was shocked you know driving down because you know my idea of of los angeles was like you know i I had seen beverly hills cop and that's that's not los angeles no um and the smog was real bad and i didn't realize you know i'm driving down and I was driving into Hollywood was much shittier than um, it's really been made a lot nicer now, uh, the Hollywood part of Los Angeles. And, um, and
0: what year was this, sir?
1: 1990. I was Ninety- 20. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I'm driving down off like this freeway or something like that. And I look up and the sky is yellow. And I'm like, that's gross. And it was just graffiti and none of the signs were in English. And I'm like, what have I done? <laughs> and. <laughs> I got fired from my first couple of jobs because yeah. they were terrible jobs. But I also got a... I had a night job. I'd already been working as a trainer in Boston um, as a night job. Um, mm-hmm. So I was, a, I was a trainer at Gold's Gym. So that sort of gave me something to control other than learning to write screenplays. I would
0: have never guessed that, up. by the way. And it's not, not that you're not in shape. I just, I'm not in shape.
1: You're, you were a trainer? How the I hell did you trainer. become a trainer? Um, well, in Boston... I bullshitted. Um, Well, that's how
0: I stayed in higher education, but keep going. Yeah,
1: Um, I I was in good shape. I I, I played a lot of sports when I was a kid because my dad was really into sports. And then I, when I was 13, I got into martial arts. Um, So I was in really good shape and I knew a lot about exercise, um, not necessarily about, and I knew some about Nautilus and stuff. So I first got a job working in, uh, there was like a Nautilus room, which was kind of the executive gym. Um,
0: Mm. This
1: was the original YMCA in the country. Um, it's in Boston on Huntington Avenue, and uh, it's also a residential YMCA. So you had a lot of people that like had got out of prison mm-hmm. and, and lived there. And so there was a free weight room in the basement, and it was all just humid and disgusting. And that was not the executive gym, but I would go down there to learn free weights, and I learned a lot about free weights from a guy named Roy, who was uh, before a convict gets out and goes to a halfway house. There was like this furlough thing where he was mm-hmm. allowed out for X number of hours to come to the Y, and he would have to stop periodically and call back in to say he's still exercising. And for some reason, he liked this idiot kid. And I got a job being a weight room attendant down there, which basically meant I just went and worked out for several hours. And so I would, I would lift free weights with him and learn all the wrong stuff. Because, you know, I guess in prison, you gather all your shit and you bring it over to your bench and you, you have your shit. So, so I had to unlearn that, (laughs) but I learned how to be a trainer doing, doing that. And I started teaching free weight classes. So by the time I got to Los Angeles, I, I kind of knew what I was doing. And then I learned a lot more when I was out there. So did you sleep in your car for a while? I did a couple of times and that's not recommended.
0: Well, no, another friend of ours, who is a screenwriter, Todd Farmer, he wrote the remake of my bloody Valentine, Jason Kentucky as well. Yeah. He talks about, just the trouble not only if you sell a screenplay great you got fed for maybe six months Mm -hmm. you know that there's not the money you think there is
1: yeah I uh I (sighs) stupidly I, I don't know stupidly I'm doing okay now but I stumbled from some entertainment jobs work I worked production and did all that sort kind of shit and then I got into development, so I was you know, low man on the total parole. I, I read the slush, that the a slush screenplay. Oh,
0: so so you, you read the screenplays, right?
1: Yeah, 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 and then yeah. I wrote up coverage on the screenplays uh-huh. and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, then the producer was independently wealthy and he closed down the company for a while. So we were all laid off, but there was a woman who had an office right next to ours who had just started her own public relations company. Um, she had left Universal to start her own company. And so I went in to answer phones a couple days a week, part-time. Six months later, I was an account executive. And one of my clients was Universal Studios Hollywood, um, the theme park. Yeah. And I didn't know shit. So talk about bullshitting. <laughs> so I was constantly just learning <laughs> as I went. And It sounds I mean,
0: like a lot of fun, though,
1: still. Uh, it was a lot of stress. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I learned the important things. Like in any office, you make, you make friends with the office manager if you're working at a theme park doing stuff, you make friends with the operations people, all the in-house PR people just pissed them off. I made friends with them. And then I could say things like I'd be told that, okay, you know, channel four is going to come out. We're going to do a live weather remote. I'd be like live weather remote. I'm not sure what that is. So I'd ask an operations person, Hey, where do you guys normally do a live weather remote? And they'd say this and this and this, cause we have to run the cable. And it'd be like cable check. There's a cable. So that's how I learned that. But um, I stumbled forward in that job and, and did okay, I think because of writing um, wow. and uh, just creativity and the ability to develop events and stuff. And, and as the money got better, that was very nice. Um, and I, it really took away from writing. Yeah. So I'd be working 70 hours a week and I'd come home and try to address screenwriting and already be exhausted when I started. So I, you know, I look back and I wish I had focused more on the writing early on, but at the same time, again, it it worked out.
0: Well, yeah, but you you got life experience, right? You have oh, I got to go, tremendous experience. You I have to mean, I go live life to write.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I'm, oh, I, I've been sent around the world. I, I'm, I nickname at one company was Traveling John because I was, I was on the road at least a week out of every month, and usually New York. Um, New York was my favorite city well long before I lived here, mm-hmm. uh, but Detroit, Chicago, um, San Francisco, Seattle, you know, always that. Uh, went to England a couple times, uh, got to go to Tokyo several times. And that was cool. I was working. One of my clients at that point was uh, uh, a few years back. Uh, there was a, an organization called Pride Fighting Championships, which was a bigger organization than the UFC at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. In fact,
1: American fighters were leaving and going to Japan because I get paid more. And um they were my client to help yeah. start to introduce them into the US. So I got to go over to Japan and work out with professional fighters. And for a martial arts geek, that's like like if you're a basketball geek and you get to play with Michael Jordan, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, so that was just that was fantastic life experience. Yeah. Um,
0: so how did you quit? What? I mean, how did you how did you eat that bullet for lack of a
1: better? <laughs> uh you know, I got I I, I was tired of doing it um i'm super stressed all it's very stressful um and uh, you know once you get further up there you know uh, on the vp level and that sort of stuff and i was at the place where i could have gone from making like good money to really really good money Uh um but the job was becoming less and less pleasant Mm -hmm. and my job was constant crisis you know and um that wasn't fun and I didn't want to do it anymore. You know, I was just, you know, unhappy every day I went into work. And finally, when I moved to New York, you know, I mean, I moved to New York and uh, there was a little bullshit involved again, cause it's the first double PR job. But I lied and said, I already lived in the city. Um, and I met this guy on a Sunday for, for this interview. He's like, can you start tomorrow? And I said, I said, no, I actually need to run back up to New England for two days, but I can start Wednesday. So I took a train back to New England, filled up some suitcases, came back, and crashed with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, <laughs> while I got started and tried to find a sublet. And that's how we just started life in New York. But you know, I had a couple of crappy jobs and I really just didn't like them. And uh, I finally was like, you know, I really need to focus on writing. And, mm-hmm. and I started uh, working on short stories and really trying to understand um, the small press market. And, and as well as learning the big five, at that point it was the big six um, before Penguin and Random House merged, but, um, and I just really started working on craft and was so satisfying. And, uh, like I said, you know, my wife is a, is an audiobook narrator and an, and an actor by trade. So she was super supportive. She's like, you hate doing the PR. Um, you love doing the writing, you know, let's do that. And so I just, that became my job. Um, you know, it doesn't pay as well, but I get up in the morning and I'm very happy, you know, we- and. Sorry, go ahead.
0: No, it's very impressive. I'm very impressed with it. I mean, because for, it just takes a lot of guts to give up a lot of money, a certain lifestyle, and say, no, this is what's going to make me happy, and I can never put a price tag on happy.
1: I'll take that. I, think, I usually think of it as a series of, oh, I've chosen to do it the hard way again. Um, which seems to be my path
0: i don't see it that way i really don't so but
1: but in seriously i mean i get up in the morning and i mean writing can have all its frustrations and and you've got all the Michigas that comes with that and it's Um, lonesome yeah you know it's funny um when i started you know in my head was very much sort of the idea of the isolated writer Um, and there's even some, there's some romance to it. You know, the isolated writer who also probably drinks too much scotch or or whiskey or something like that
0: in a cabin in new England. Right. And, uh,
1: but, uh, you know, I learned social media helped. Um, but I started learning about conventions and I went to, uh, first I went to a reader con and, uh, which is in, in Massachusetts and, you know, it's one of those things. I didn't fucking know anybody, and I was—I uh, decided to do what I did when I was in PR. If I was in a town that I didn't know, I just sat at the bar and I ordered a steak and some gin and tonics, and um, I ended up talking to a couple um, that I'm still friends with now.
0: Yeah.
1: And then another couple showed up, and uh, the kitchen had closed, um, and I had ordered. I, I have a, a, a weird quirk that when I travel, I like to have a room pizza. Pizza. I just keep in my hotel room. So if I've missed a meal, yeah. I just have pizza. Or yeah. if it's in the morning and I'm late for a panel or something, I just have a slice as I go.
0: John, you're talking to two fat bastards. We could not understand. The only right. thing that we understood more than high school sucked was room pizza.
1: <laughs> so room pizza. Yeah, it's, it's become a joke that I have this friend, Gordon White, who's another wonderful writer. He's out in Seattle. But I disappeared from this uh, meet and greet at a conference out in California. And I came back. He's like, you just went up to your room and had pizza, didn't you? I said, yes, I did. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I told them, I was like, you know, I have half a pizza up in my room and you can have it. Um, and they said, great. Okay, we're going to go upstairs, but we're going to stop um, We're going to stop in this uh, hotel room first and talk to a couple of writers. Now, there are people I really wanted to meet, like John Langan and Paul Tremblay and stuff like that. Wouldn't you know, it was a room full of John Langan and Paul. You know, I mean, all these people that I really... I liked their writing and I wanted to meet them. And they're passing around a bottle of scotch. And I'm not sure how long I spent drinking scotch and, and talking to these guys, but I do remember calling uh, Linda uh, after I got back to my hotel room and I was like, holy shit, I just met all these people that I wanted to meet on the first night. And I didn't even know what was happening. Yep. Um, so that was, uh, and so it started to break down the idea of the isolated writer as they went to more and more conventions and got to know people. And then writing groups was something that I didn't understand. And I kind of abjured at the, at the beginning, um, or poo-pooed, um, mm-hmm. and two guys in the writing group that I'm in now, uh, Nick Kaufman, uh, and Dan Braun, both wonderful writers and, and very, very nice human beings, talked to me about joining the writing group. And I was kind of like, eh. um, and, uh, eventually I go in, you have like a probationary meeting just to make sure that everyone's comfortable with you. um, and you're comfortable with them, but I enjoy the process and, um, I've been doing it for years now. And it's a, it's a group that a lot of great writers, um, have been in the past. Sarah Langan has a book out now called the good neighbor. Um, she's great. Victor Laval is the shit. Um, and he was in the group. Um, in fact, tomorrow I'm going to be on a an econ panel and Victor's going to be on it. So I'm excited for that because he's just amazing. Uh, he lives in Queens um, and I've been doing it for years. And we actually just this last week had our first real in-person meeting since the pandemic lockdown. So that was a blast.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Was it at a convention or was it?
1: No, no. We, we, uh, we met in union square, which is a, a big, uh-huh. big square. Uh, you ever seen the warriors? Yes, of course. Okay. You Come know, the, out and play. Right, you know the place where uh, they're in the subway station where the guys are on roller skates yeah. and they have like bib overalls. That's Union Square.
0: Right. Yeah. So
1: we didn't see any of those guys, but we so we met we met there above ground, and then went we then went for our traditional Mexican food afterwards.
0: Walter Hill made a very stylized film. I don't think it ever really was like that. It's dead on accurate.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's not accurate at all. It's
0: not accurate at all.
1: Did you know that that um, the fox, who's the really smart guy with the curly hair? Um, was supposed to be the main character. No, I didn't know that. The actor was such a jerk um, and resisted all attempts by Walter Hill to to sort of bond.
0: Yeah,
1: Hill had him killed. So the scene, he, he got someone who's on the crew who had curly hair and was skinny. They put him in the warrior's costume. That's why when the cop throws him off onto the subway tracks before the train hits him, you only see the back of him. You never see his face because it was some guy from the crew. Hey. They killed him off, and Swan became the main guy.
0: You told you taught a film geek something today. I do not think I knew that. Thank you so much. It's fantastic. It's it fantastic. Is fantastic. I love that
1: movie.
0: <laughs> all right, I've been taking all the questions, James. I, I've,
2: say, I've got to say, because I've got I've got baby powder here. Oh, I'm so glad. I, and, and I've got to say, that as I read through, uh, and and I, I'm actually going the the. Uh, Highballing through Gahana, uh, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, but um, I've got to say, it, as I read this, it was the first one I opened the cover, started to read it, and your writing reminded me of a quote. And, and I think it's, I think of it as a great compliment. And it's actually something somebody said about uh, Peter Green of Fleetwood Mac. It's not the notes he plays, they're the ones he stops playing that makes it work really well. And one thing that I, reading that first story you're spoiler alert for anybody listening but you're uh you're uh your are train scene when the the train gets invaded
0: mm-hmm.
2: i can't get that out of my head and it's because you leave you give me just enough that my brain takes over and feeds off of it and the horrors that you you create there and, I, and that's a theme that i kept as i kept reading i was like you do such a great job, and I guess that's my question, when you're writing something like that, what do you decide to put in? What is it that triggers like, okay, this is my description and that's where I'm gonna stop?
1: Um, that's a good, first of all, thank you. I, I'm, I'm so glad that you like that story. Um, uh, I, when you live in the Northeast, you spend a lot of time on what they call the Northeast Corridor, which is the Amtrak lines. So uh, we have both of us, uh, Lynn and I have family up in, in New England. So back and forth to uh, Boston uh, from New York. Um, so I had to do trains. And so I put trains in a lot of my stories just because I've spent so much time on them. Um, so there are a couple of things. Um, there's a technical thing that I learned from screenwriting. And it's, uh, uh, it's the practice of starting late and leaving early in a scene. So... Um, I want to start as deep as, as, as possible into a scene where you can still pick up the thread, but I haven't wasted your time. I don't need to show you the guy walking into the building and opening the door and checking his mail and all that stuff. I can show you, he's already in his apartment, he throws a stack of mail on, the, on his kitchen table. You know he picked it up somehow coming into the building because that's what people do and you know. Yeah. And then at the same time, I don't want to belabor things at the end. When I get to the point where the message has been delivered or the lesson has been learned or the point has been satisfied, I like to stop. Sometimes I stop too early. Um, but a lot of times I will imagine much more, uh, particularly in, that, in that, that big scene where all those, those horrible things are coming to the train. Um, and there was a lot more in my head but, but my approach to writing, um, I, I want you to do a lot of the work. Um, so I wanna trigger your imagination and let your imagination do the work. And I really, a lot of it is, I, and it's funny to, to say that it, it, it reminds me of like a jazz musician or something, cause I have no musical ability. I can't sing, I can't play shit. Um, I once owned an electric guitar with an amp. I never learned how to play it. I couldn't do anything. Um, but it feels very much like a musician who's feeling his way through the tune. And I can feel where it's coming. I can feel the stop and I stop. And I'd like to, if I can, when I think about it technically, but usually it's it's an instinct first. Um, I want to leave you wanting more. And I want to leave you, I want to resolve an issue, but leave you with a question that makes you go further into the story. Um, So I guess, does that answer
2: yeah, yeah, no, and I think that's and, and and much like as you mentioned earlier, when I was a child, I I and and still sometimes today that those that fear of the dark was always mm-hmm. uh, and it's I really love horror movies and horror stories now, but when I was a child, that was completely like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark was enough to trigger you know <laughs> nightmares for me, right? And uh, and you know everybody else, it's an adventure film. I'm like, no, that's pure horror to me, right? Um And obviously, I grew up and I love Indiana Jones. Now I love Horror and but there is still that thread, and I think that's what uh, like I said. I think a lot of your stories really work well on me for exactly the reason that you said. It's I finish the story and I'm like, oh, that's effective, that's good. And then again, I mean, just um, creepy baby being part of a blob comes back at me at four o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go watch TV for a while. I don't need to sleep. I'm good. Um,
1: <laughs> good. <laughs> And I, I, mean,
2: I not think, good but good thank you no no some and I, I think that's <laughs> one of the things that really works and I, I think the uh, I think the other thing that I really appreciate uh, about some of the things that you write is it's it's there's still these relationships like the, all mm-hmm. the relationships really do echo through be it the family mm-hmm. or be it you know a burial suit about well I, I need to do this thing for my father or whatever mm-hmm. that may be and i think that's one of the things that really carries forward and and you know segueing into rooster which comes out tuesday i think rooster as i tuesday
0: re- available on amazon i'm assuming
1: amazon also at gray press the publisher sorry and, uh, keep going
2: the, uh, yeah but I think because when I first started to read that, I'm like, I'm, I, I don't know where these relationships are going to come. But quickly, I started to realize I was like, oh wait, I'm starting to care about people now. And it's and beautiful. He's, yeah, he's not immediately somebody where I'm like, oh, I'd hang out with him, right? Oh,
1: Rooster, yeah, he's a he's a troubled dude.
2: But it is a, it's a very compelling story that, and and I think that's the other thing that you you blend genres to where I I don't know what I. I I've read horror, I've read, you know, fantasy, and I've read, you know, crime noir and all, all that stuff, and it plays with all of those, but you definitely blaze a trail where I'm like, I'm not sure where this is going anymore.
1: Yeah, that I, that's great to hear. Um, I'm glad it works. I, I have trouble coloring inside the lines, um, and uh, you mentioned the story Burial Suit earlier. Um, that was, I wrote that long before, um, you know, Rooster. And uh, another crime novel I have that's with an agent right now called The Hard Six, um, but that's it's a crime story that has some supernatural stuff in it, and sort of a weird supernaturally goal, um, but uh, I, I I love blending those genres together. I think they go so well together uh, for a variety of reasons. Often because a lot of the bad stuff that happens in both genres is because of decisions made by the characters. Um, your characters don't have to be nice people. You know, they don't have to be Dudley Do-rights. You have to figure out how to make them compelling um, and possibly sympathetic, Um, but but compelling is more important. Um, And those are two genres where you're never guaranteed that you're gonna win, Mm -hmm. that you you through the the character that you come to identify with is gonna win. There's a real serious chance And horror or crime, uh, and noir that uh, they're going to die or end up in prison or lose their family or or whatever the horrible stakes are. Um, And it seems so. It creates a lot more risk for me than like fantasy and science fiction, where typically I mean let's set aside Game of Thrones, which kind of broke the mold there. Um, But typically, you know, you know that you know the great hero is not going to die if there's a party you know, you can identify which one's going to be sacrificed because of the noble one or something like that. Um, but, you know, like uh, in the David Eddings book about Garyon, you know, um, I don't know if you read those. Um, he becomes a sorcerer and a big mm-hmm. powerful, you know, all the pseudo god and all that stuff. but he was never going to die.
0: You mm-hmm. know, it's,
1: you knew that. Um, but if you read a Stephen King story, he might die. And I read Night Shift, that collection, when I, I think I was 11. And that really introduced that idea to me of the vulnerability um, because I had been, you know, John Carter of Mars, the Edgar Rice Burroughs is yeah, right. not going to die. No matter what happens, he ain't going to die. And in fact, he's going to win. And he's going to smile. He's going to have a fighting smile when he does it. And you go to Stephen King or Peter Strau or something like that, and they're not smiling and they're going to die. And, and it's terrible.
0: And it may tear um,
1: your heart out as
0: it happens while you're reading it.
1: Because you've become invested which is outstanding
0: which is back to all of there is no horror if there's not a three-dimensional character that you can don't necessarily have to like but can right. relate to right that you can understand that you can see which is what king is great i always tell right. people, why do you think i'll tell you why is because every character in those books you know them right you know that person they well, are and- a person. Yeah, and
1: you know he's so prolific that they're not all great books, but he's no, of course not. more great books than I think anyone I can think of. And if you think about it, it's like Salem's Lot or The Shining, get rid of the supernatural stuff, and you have an incredibly compelling, immersive story.
0: Yeah, of people but, dealing with their own demons. Right
1: on top um, of and their relationships, and you yeah. know, and, and all that sort of stuff. um But then, because he's cool, then there's vampires. <laughs> you know or a haunted hotel it's funny
0: actually i love salem's lots one of my favorite stephen king novels that i don't think gets enough credit but it's, it's my favorite
1: it's actually my favorite book period
0: is it really mm-hmm. well it's one of the first ones that dealt with it to me i know i am legend <laughs> but i am legend has that twisted ending of they're actually the good guy you know what i mean right right, right. where the movies always fuck it up the movies always fuck up the right end. because no one wants to go down with that right uh, but salem's like this is a disease it comes in it just takes over everybody and and it's it's like it's like covid or anything else Mm -hmm. anyway we're getting off topic i want to talk about you because i want to move into a question about a little bit about your process and a Mm -hmm. little bit more about the freedom you have with novels over screenplays because Mm -hmm. you started writing screenplays Mm -hmm. and now we're doing novels and short stories can you talk a little bit about that i mean
1: screenplays are hugely restrictive sorry keep correct
0: well that just go ahead and talk about it because they are hugely restrictive because yes you can dream it up but you know down the line that a line producer is going to be screaming at somebody that the money's got to be here and we've got to get this shot today and you can excise this whole half page because we can't shoot it because we're over schedule and that's just with the director and that's before you even get in writing and you're going to be rewritten 10 times if it's a studio picture, if not 20 times Yeah, with 15 ghostwriters who will never even be on the credits because the WGA will never in arbitration, right. never give them credit. Sorry, if for our audience, this is all complicated, but this is exactly how this works.
1: It's, it's, uh, you yeah. Know, I still like the entertainment industry. Um, I, I, came, do I came to not want to be a part of the Los Angeles entertainment industry um writing i don't think is treated with a lot of respect that's no, not it, the and, first
0: ones fired right it's and this is a,
1: the writer and this is a this is a generalization of course there are some writers that get great respect you can get a lot of money which is why hollywood has traditionally attracted all kinds of great novelists and playwrights and stuff like that because all of a sudden you go from getting a little bit of money you know to getting screenplay money and that's it there's a different world. Yeah. Um, it's also, you know, it's a collaborative form. If you're talking film, it's considered still the director's medium. Um, so they can do anything they want. You talk about bringing in other writers. Yes. Um, and um, so for me, that that sort of uh, existential foundation was problematic. But the form itself. Is less enjoyable to work in than writing a novel or, or a short story um, where you're much freer just to follow the story. Because you have some uh, very specific limitations with a screenplay. Uh, for example, you know uh, you want your movie to be generally—it I mean, changes—but you know, uh, two hours or under, and it's a page a minute. So you want 120 pages or less. So you're constantly fighting to get to that 120 or less, which really curtails storytelling. Yeah. Um, then you've got all sorts of expectations that you know. Uh, famous action producer back in like the 80s and 90s and you know did a lot of like uh Shane Black movies and stuff like that um was Joel Silver and he had something called I think it was the whammy principle or something like that every 10 pages there needed to be an explosion or an action action scene Mm -hmm. okay now we're really burdening this with an artificial you know sort of thing um and then just the writing itself um you know it's very dialogue-driven, which is interesting, and and I actually like write, writing dialogue, and I still propel a lot of my prose when I can with dialogue. Um, but you can't use a lot of descriptive prose. Your narrative prose is almost non-existent
0: because that's um, a director's job, right? right. A lot, and you're right. going to, and, and the part of the storytelling is done visually. The way right. you set up a crane shot, or the way that the, the it's done visually. That's and, that's the medium.
1: And you're blowing your page count because you want to be one twenty or under. Yeah. Um, so it's very restrictive. That being said, it put a lot of discipline on me. Um, so what, what we were just talking about, about, um, you know, entering late and leaving early and stuff like that are Mm -hmm. things that I brought from screenwriting. And that's certainly not the only way to, to, uh, write a novel. Uh, Um, I mentioned John Langan earlier, and he's a much more literary writer and his, his writing is, uh, very full, um, and fulsome. Um, and which is not the way I approach things. Mine, mine, I, I look for, you know, I I shave off every ounce of what I think might possibly be fat, because um, yeah. I want a very lean greyhound, you know, running running from you know page one to page end. Um, but you know, other writers like Langan are, are are much more literary, and it works very well. But coming from the screenwriting world, you know, you're definitely lean and mean. Um, and I and I and I enjoy also. I, not all of my books are like this. Um, but it's a style that works very well when you want to write a very kinetic story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so rooster is a very kinetic story. There's a lot of actual movement. Mm-hmm. Run the mafia and the Gakuza and all that stuff is after his ass. Um, so when you keep that lean, you know, you really it really helps move it like a freight train.
0: Yeah. Could you so all your books are your darlings, they're all your children. Can that's you that's why we kill them? Right. When are you, so how hard is it for you to adapt it to script when they, the options start coming and the offers start coming?
1: I don't know. Um, it'll be interesting. Uh, I had, I had one guy that wanted to take a story from a baby cutter. Um mm-hmm. I don't know if you read the story red.
0: Not yet. No. But
1: it starts off with a, it's a, it's a, it's an alien invasion movie. It starts off with a guy that looks like Howdy Doody walking down the road. He crouches down next to a dumpster outside of like a road stop, you know, yeah. diner and he, cuts off his thumb or finger and he throws it in the dumpster and um but the guy he wanted a free option um and i was like there's gonna be a lot of money you're gonna wrap around this i think you can give me money um Mm -hmm. and if he was a bigger person maybe i would have said you know okay here's your free option but he wasn't so
0: yeah you that's the other problem is that is cutting through the bullshit and the actual players
1: yeah yeah, well, and I've been, I've been through that. There's a, a wonderfully evocative phrase out in LA um, called blowing sunshine up your ass. Yes. And when, uh, when Rooster, um, I first wrote that and got an agent and I went out around the town and I had like 30 meetings with producers mm-hmm. all over town. I was all over the studio lots and it's all very exciting and wonderful conversations. And, um, and what came out of it was people wanting me to pitch ideas. First of all, the verbal pitch is just death for me. And why are you fucking asking writers to pitch an idea verbally? It's just, (laughs) um, if if we could do that, we'd be actors. Um, But, uh, you know, really, I was asked, you know, okay, what's your idea? You know, they wanted to send, the agent wanted to send me um, to pitch a Jurassic Park sequel. Like, have you read what I write? Don't know what the fuck to do with Jurassic Park. Yeah, send an assassin to Jurassic Park, he's an alcoholic. And you know, I mean, what, what am I going to do? Ooh, I kind of like to see that. Let's, say, yeah.
2: let's,
1: get, let's get Vin Diesel on that. I think
2: he's about,
0: right.
1: I think we could do that? <laughs> let's steal that from him, James. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, go yeah. ahead and take uh, it. Take right, it right now. I mean, I love dinosaurs, and I and I, I enjoy. And I
0: love assassins. I, I say right. this go. It's a go. Right. It's a green light. Oh, we we
2: genetically engineer. We take an assassin. And we genetically graft their mental engrams or whatever onto one dinosaur and oh, send yeah. them out to fight all the other dinosaurs.
0: That's with right. Lasers, and we're going to clear the island. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. See, we could write this shit.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll settle for saffactory.
1: Well, well, that's a, you know another thing is that screenplays are often you know referred to uh, affectionately quote you know um, as you know so yeah that piece of shit that he wrote seriously. I mean, it's, I it's, it's, it was common parlance, um, which is depressing.
0: Or to have writers not even bothered to do spell spellcheck.
1: Uh, well, a lot. Of, well, that's the problem. Everyone writes a screenplay. Everyone is either going to be a director or a writer out in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And most of them have no capability at either. Yep. Um, but uh, I don't know. I also, frankly, I like the Northeast a lot more than I like Southern California. Yeah. So After after about seventeen years, it was time to come back.
0: So my next question to round it out about it about your so what is your process daily? Uh, do you have a ritual of I get up, I write this time, then I have my muffin. Or also, when you plot out something like Ro- Rooster, of course, it's been around for a while, but maybe another novel. Does it? Do you do, you do outlines? Do you do any of that stuff? What is your process?
1: Yeah. Um my process is if I'm in a project, um I I write in sessions, it's all very loosely defined. Um when, when I started writing, I would have to really sort of work and almost follow ritual to like getting in the zone. Yeah. And now I get up and I'm just in my underwear and I can sit down and start writing, you know, as long as I've had some coffee and walk the dog or something. Um but I will write in the morning um and then I will write after lunch, and then usually another session later in the day. Um, The morning and the after lunch session are typically more sort of raw creativity. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes the later in the day is going back and what have I written? What have I inflicted on the page and-
0: Honing that down.
1: Yeah, cleaning it up, tightening it. Um, A lot of times I will write scenes I I don't outline. And often, entire scenes dump into my head. And so I will write as quickly as possible um, to capture the essence of the scene, knowing that I need to go back and create the world around the conversation between these two characters or something. And this is something that happens fairly frequently. Um, And drawing that, you know, uh, just a technical thing that I do a lot is, you know, just as I'm working on things, you know, just uh, it's very easy to fall into the trap of dealing with only the sense of sight in the sense of uh, hearing. Um, so, you know, what does it smell like? What does it feel like? What does it taste like? Is it humid? Do you know, do you smell, you know, today, unfortunately, I've come back from lunch, the, the subway platform, it was very humid and it smelled like diapers, not good diapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are all important details that make a world come alive. Uh, so I'll go back in and fill those in if I haven't put them in. But but in the in the broader sense, I do not, outline when i when i try to outline uh, and i have tried because i envy people that can um it crushes the creative engine for mm-hmm. me that that spark that sort of drives me through that i that i really you know you ride that lightning through it and i can't find it if i've already created if i already really know where i'm going so i've usually thought about things for a while um and i have set pieces and things and plot points that I want to try to reach. Like, I don't know how rooster is going to get from, you know, city A to city B. Yeah. But I'll figure that out when I'm there and I'll figure it out based on the truth of the situation. Okay. Well, he can't take a train because he has no cash on him. Mm -hmm. Um, So maybe he has to steal a car, you know, and where does he steal a car? You know, something like that, but also, really following the character's truth. And the only time that I encounter what for me might be a block is if I'm trying to impose plot Mm
0: -hmm. as
1: opposed to listening to the character. What is the character honestly doing um, or would honestly do? And sometimes that causes stories to veer off in unexpected directions, which is kind of wild because then you're just hanging on, you know? Yeah. Um, My first novel, Dead Men, that happened. Um, And I, I was about halfway through the book and this character, John Smith, who's a big killer guy and all that, and this big fight in Appalachia. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he had pulled this big wooden cross out of a church and was killing people with it. And I, was, I had been anticipating writing this scene because it was going to be the most bitchin' action scene ever and horror and violence and all this stuff and the rain's coming down and they're slipping in the mud and blood everywhere and And I just couldn't fucking write the scene. And it was just, it was killing me. It was like two weeks on this fucking thing. And I finally stopped and I said, okay, I gotta think. And I, I backed up and I had not had this experience yet. And when you're, I think if people maybe go through MFA programs, they get some structure to learn how to do these things. So I had to just sort of figure this out. And what I figured out was I'm not listening to my character. I'm trying to make John Smith do something. What would John Smith do? well, John Smith, this is a fight that's actually for someone else that's trying to control him and he doesn't like them and he doesn't want to be controlled. But what if he just stops fighting in the middle and walks away and I had him drop the weapon and just walk away in the middle of the fight. And I said, what if I just do that? Whole story opened up, never had another block for the second half of the novel, no blocks. Um, because I had learned, I need to follow him. I have an idea of where I want to go, but the characters have some say.
2: talking about going places i think that's one the other thing And that we tweeted earlier um your descriptions of cities and of locations and of all that stuff as we said in the tweet they're hungry like there Mm -hmm. is a sense that these places are not just where people live there there's and in and, and, and Rooster, we see as he travels from place to place, there's actually, you know, that this is not this. This is not, right. you know, New York is not X, is not Y. As you go, you're going to experience this differently. And so I guess the question is, where do you pull that from? Is it because you have traveled and have been, you know, had to do the job where you did travel so much? Does that infuse it? or Or what makes you see, I guess, because you get the surface, the tourist-friendly areas, right? But then you get that underbelly of right. what it's actually like.
1: Um, traveling, definitely, definitely. I, I love traveling, um, and I and I don't like tours, so I, I tend to, you know, um, go away from the tours, um, which caused some consternation when I was younger. A quick side note. Um, I went to the Soviet Union twice in the 80s because I thought I wanted to be in diplomacy or intelligence. Um, And the Russians were the big thing. And so we were our last night on my second trip, um, I was 18, and we were in Estonia in the city of Tallinn, which is really cool because it has a medieval wall and all that shit. And the whole group was going out to like some fucking choir and a church and I thought that sounded awful. So I grabbed my roommate and some other weird kid and some other lady, and, and uh, I, for some reason, I didn't do this. And I said, go talk to the concierge who had no English, um, and let's find a good like, club or a bar to go to. So we ended up in this cab. We stopped at some place that was full of army people, and that was wrong. So we sent the women in our group up because like they'll talk to you. Um, So she talked and we got directions and the cabbie took us to this place. We get to this sort of really nice club and in the open, you know, bar area, everyone, the men are all in uniform or very nice suits and the women are in evening gowns. And then we sit down in this room that has a small stage and brass rails and little tables. And, and we're teenagers. We're drinking screwdrivers because vodka orange is the only thing we knew how to order. And, uh, and so while the other people were, were, at a church listening to a choir we were at a uh, we saw strippers <laughs> it, these were estonian strippers and it was a it was a burlesque show and um
0: your first stripper your
1: no first stripper show? it was not my first stripper show oh. but it was my first eastern block stripper show well <laughs> uh, and if i
0: experienced one tomorrow that would be mine as well so keep
1: yeah <laughs> and it was uh it was it was an experience so yeah so so that's that's my idea with tours so i i don't follow directions well and or follow plots, or so when I so when I but when I to, to get back on track, I like to put people in the place um, and really make the environment come alive. Um, and <laughs> I, I have a fetish for two things that I anthropomorphize um, locations. Um, so I like that you know New York is going to feel alive, or the other places in Rooster, etc., are going to feel very, very real and and Hungry's. Pretty good word because the stories tend to be on yep. the on the dark side. Um and they love it when you water the ground with your blood. Um that and cars. I, I name cars. I just wrote a short story and I named a car deep purple, and my wife right she always is subject to the first early draft. She said, You named a car again. And I said, I know, I couldn't help it. Do
0: you love cars in real life though? Do you do you have a clock
1: Um I they're okay. I mean, I got sick of driving. When you drive in LA for, for a long time, you it's. I'm glad that I don't own a car right now in New York. Um, mm-hmm. Although I did for a while. I, after I got divorced, I had a very sensible Jeep Grand Cherokee and that got stolen on my birthday. <laughs> and I had just been dumped by my rebound girlfriend. And then I went out, some friends took me out to a, a rock show. My car got stolen. So I took the insurance money and I did the responsible thing. And I bought a 1967 Firebird. Well, yeah yeah of it got like eight miles to the gallon yeah you know it needed shitloads of work but it was cool <laughs> yeah well um, james
0: he's got you beat you were fired on your birthday so he's, he's nice lost a woman and a grand cherokee on his birthday
2: yeah that was uh, that actual story was they uh they had a, a company kind of uh, birthday card they gave mm-hmm. and they called me to the office to give me the birthday card waited till i opened it and it was like and one more thing Oh my god. It was it was all it was all over in about 6 minutes. What and,
0: assholes. And- that's a true it. story, though. I worked there, too. That's <laughs> said, funny, gonna, though. He said, I've got a meeting. I was out that day, and I was like, oh, they not going to fire you on your bridge. Swear to God. They
2: did. Yeah. They did. yeah. Totally um, did. By the way, it all obviously worked out well. I'm, I'm doing okay. And and right. very rarely do I sit there with my hit list. And that's a joke right. before anybody calls Right, me. right,
1: right, right. right.
0: <laughs> well, we've had you on here for almost an hour. We need to start going ahead and, and wrapping up. And we appreciate your time <laughs> so much. But so rooster comes out when
1: uh july 20th which is tuesday
0: tuesday and one last question yes for those people out there i know you get this all the time what should they do if they want to be writers they should what's something other than just write before i say (laughs) because i hear Um, that shit all the time too
1: right um read yeah read everything read all the time read in the genre's you want to write in and also get outside them if you can, but especially read where you want to play so that you can write the kind of stories that you like to read. And it's OK if they're derivative at first. Everyone starts there. You know, Ramsey Campbell, who's you know this amazing English writer who's been writing for a zillion years, um, has talked about when he started out, he was very derivative and copying Lovecraft and yada, yada, yada. And now he's Ramsey Campbell, you know.
0: Everybody does it. Stephen King started out uh, copying Richard Matheson. He's he's talked about it before. He's given him credit for it. Everybody gets through a Lovecraft phase when they're young. I had a Lovecraft phase, but
1: read, just read Read. and read and read,
0: read, read. Now where can, can they follow you on Twitter, social media?
1: Yes. I'm on Twitter at John Foster Fick F I C. Um, And you can look for me at John Foster um, on Facebook um and my website is Johnfosterfiction.com. i keep it simple so i can remember mm-hmm. um easily confused so.
0: and they have all the links on your website to all your books correct
1: uh yeah the link to rooster will go up uh soon as soon as linda handles the technology stuff because i'm not very clever um so as soon as she puts it up uh it will be there too
0: <laughs> all right james you got anything before we go
2: I, I and I'm saying this honestly. No, no money has exchanged hands. You all do need to read this stuff. This is it Thank stuck you. with me. I'm I'm not kidding when I say I'm waking up picturing uh things coming at me in the dark, and that is the biggest compliment can give because that's it really wonderful. Does yeah. uh, so yes, I, I say this honestly as an endorsement. Check out Rooster. Rooster is phenomenal. Baby powder is great, and so. I'll be reading. I'll be catching up on on your catalog as well. I've I've got some reading to do. That's wonderful
1: to hear. Thank
0: you. John C. Foster, you're welcome. Anytime you want to come back on Bonehead Weekly, this has been Bonehead.